Hello, welcome to Farm to Fork, a program dedicated to how food and drink are produced, delivered, and served throughout the Pioneer Valley. In every episode, we speak with some of the brightest lights in the Valley's culinary world, from gleaners, gatherers, hunters, fishermen, farmers, and packagers, to brewers and restaurateurs, and everyone in between. My name is Jessica, co-host Sue Timberlake and show producer Claire Piazza join me in the studio. Today we'll be talking with Rosemary Malfi, Mass Pollinator Network Coordinator. So Rosemary, how did Mass Pollinator Network get its start? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that. And I also just want to thank you for, for having me on tonight and also um, just thank you for your programming and highlighting local food, food system solutions and, and uh, some really great thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Sure. Uh, to answer your question, um, the, so I just want to start by saying the Massachusetts Pollinator Network is a program at the Northeast Organic Farming Association, Massachusetts chapter, or NOFA Mass for short. Uh, and this program is intended to grow and maintain a statewide network of individuals, community groups, native plant growers, and other organizations that are interested in, in and working to improve outcomes for pollinators across the Commonwealth. Um, and, you know, the idea behind this is that, you know, we are stronger together, that we can pursue our shared mission more effectively when we are connected through routine communication and when we can share resources and ideas. And, um, you know, I'll talk about this a little more later, hopefully, but when, you know, we're all connected in this way, we're also more easily um, uh, able to mobilize in favor of things like positive policy change. Um, so that's kind of where we are now. This initiative technically launched about a year and a half ago in the spring of 2021 when I was brought on as the network coordinator. Um, but it really began years before that with the work of Peggy McLeod and Amy Pulley, who some folks listening might be familiar with. They co-founded and operated Western Mass Pollinator Networks. And uh, they built this organization from the ground up. It was a it was a grassroots network that they built of people and communities that wanted to make a difference, uh, that wanted to you know, plant pollinator gardens and pass pollinator-friendly resolutions in their towns. Uh, they built this awesome website. They went to tabling events. They did all sorts of things um, over the course of several years, including uh, putting together a land management symposium at Smith College, um, which some folks uh, on the call maybe maybe remember. Um, and uh, in recent years, other pollinator protection groups have also arisen in other parts of the state. Um, some of them were directly inspired by Peggy and Amy, and they all came together, uh, you know, a couple years back and work to develop this vision of going statewide. And um, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. That's the vision we're trying to realize right now. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So what experience uh, did you bring to this position of Mass Pollinator Network Coordinator? Yeah, uh, so I, like I said, I came to this position in 2021 and I came to it from a career in research. So uh, I earned my PhD in 2015 from the University of Virginia, and I very specifically studied um, pollinator health and ecology, uh, and even more specifically than that, because it was a dissertation, uh, I studied how aspects of the floral resource environment and uh, parasites influence bumblebee populations. And so um, after that program, I went on to two postdoctoral positions, one at the University of California in the entomology department, and the other um, out your way uh, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in Dr. Lynn Adler's lab. 
Um, and there we were specifically looking at how diet uh, influences parasite infections in, in bees. So um, in short, I spent like much of my adult life thinking about bees, falling in love with them, feeling very concerned for their future. And it was very exciting to transition to a role that is focused on taking action and helping others to take action to improve the outlook for their populations. Mm -hmm. So what is, um, Rosemary, the scope of this uh, coordinator position? Yeah. um, So it is multifaceted, and I would say it's evolved a lot over the last uh, year and a half since I began. Um, But my, you know, I think the primary things that I work on are uh, maintaining and always, of course, growing our network. Uh, And that means a few different things. It means hosting and moderating um, online communication channels, which are, of course, via social media and also email. We also try to hold sort of regular spaces and opportunities for people to connect with one another um, and to, you know, sort of directly have, have conversations about pollinator protection and the things that are going on in all of the communities across the state where these things are happening. So we facilitate monthly meetings uh, with network participants, and we try to, you know, facilitate uh, partnership building and making connections when it makes sense to do that. Um, I think a good example would be uh, some folks in North Andover were getting together and and wanted to um, engage more in uh, sort of neighbor to neighbor education about about pollinators and planting for them. And we um, helped to connect them with some of the other community leaders across the state who have formed similar groups. And, you know, through uh, conversations with those folks, they kind of settled on a model that they thought was good for their town, which was um, a pollinator pathway group. And um, that was exactly it was really exciting to see that happen and to see all those people talking to each other, because it's like, that's the point. That's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really, really great to see um, to see that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the, just the other piece of what I do is I, I coordinate public programming and um, uh, I'm also actually part of the NOFMAS policy department to talk about mm-hmm. more. Too. Great. So, I mean, I, I'm picturing NOFA, of course, I'm assuming there are probably a lot of members and a lot of folks coordinating. Um, so I was curious in what direct ways and for what purposes you interact with, uh, members, other members of NOFA? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we are, uh, a very close, uh, you know, like a tight knit organization. Um, so we interact, uh, a lot actually. And as I mentioned, uh, I am a part of the policy department. So, um, one way that I interact, uh, with other NOFA staff is that I, you know, work directly with our policy director, Marty Dagoberto Driggs, to track and influence policy related to regenerative regenerative land care practices and also um, just legislation that protects biodiversity at large. Uh, so we work we work very closely together. Um, and the pollinator network, you know, prior to my uh, being here was something that Marty really helped to steer and uh, and to bring to fruition. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, more more broadly than that, we are very much a team at NOFA Mass. Uh, everyone is focused on a larger shared mission, um, which is, of course, promoting and educating about and advocating for um, sustainable land care practices, including, of course, organic farming. Um, so I'm coordinating, you know, 
this particular program, but we work together to put on um, uh, our big conferences for the year. Uh, so we have, we have two, we have a summer conference and a winter conference uh, event. And, you know, we bring in lots of speakers on a variety of topics. Since I've joined, I've tried to help recruit folks who are talking, you know, a little bit more about um, uh, pollinator related things and gardening. And uh, yeah, we work together to, uh, to make those things, to make those events happen. Mm-hmm. So what are uh, the goals of the Mass Pollinator Network, Rosemary? Yes, uh, I would say we have uh, multiple goals. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I should back up and say that the goals of the Pollinator Network are not necessarily just, you know, mine or or NOFA Masses. They are goals that um, were put together and developed by numerous community leaders across the state who got together before my, you know, ever being here and deciding on the things that they felt were really important to pursue. So I just want to say that the, you know, there were a number of minds that, um, you know, set our agenda and priorities um, and, uh, you know, they deserve credit for that. So our um, goals overall, I would say number one is, of course, you know, collectively, we are interested in educating people about the very wonderful world of flower visiting insects. We want to help people develop an appreciation for, you know, all, all bugs and invertebrates and to inform people about the challenges, of course, that are facing their populations and uh, most importantly, what we can do to help. So we want to help people, you know, transition to gardening and land care practices, lawn care practices that, you know, not only are neutral to pollinators, but benefit them. Whereas, you know, a lot of our conventional practices are actually pretty, pretty harmful for their populations. And so that means helping people learn how to garden with native plants, uh, you know, what plants to choose, where to put them, um, and promoting lawn to habitat conversion, and of course, reducing, if not eliminating uh, pesticide use. So you mentioned uh, the insects that you know, visit the flowers, but there, my understanding, there are several other pollinators. Um, did you want to mention going to the other? Oh, sure. Yes. Yes. I know. I'm, uh, I, because my background is in, um, bee biology, I am uh, a, a little biased, I will admit. And I talk about bees a lot, but there are, there are numerous, uh, pollinators out there. There are, of course, bees. And I will say that they do perform kind of the lion's share of pollination, Mm -hmm. certainly in crop systems and and also um, uh, in natural systems. But there are many other very important pollinators, and those include wasps, butterflies. Flies are a really big one. They don't really Mm -hmm. get enough credit (laughs) for for that service that they perform. Mm -hmm. Beetles can be pollinators. Birds are pollinators. And also bats. Um, Mm -hmm. And occasionally you'll get another sort of, you know, interesting mammal in there in, in, in certain systems. But uh, yes, many organisms can be pollinators, um, uh, even though bees, I think, often get the kind of the credit for. For doing that. Yeah, I was actually when I was just driving over to the studio, I was thinking, boy, I haven't really I mean, not that I have a lot of time to look at the news, but I haven't really heard anything about the bat population and their status Mm. Um, and I thought, oh, I wonder how they're doing because I know the media, you know, they kind of jump on a topic, but then it, when it gets old, you know, they, 
<clears throat> scurry away so they, you know, it's not always covered um, well all the time. For sure, yeah. Um, I also curious about the bats, but um, yeah. So in general, rosemary, why should people care about pollinators? What's the what's the big deal? Yeah, there are um, many reasons that I could list, um, and I think kind of the first one that always gets mentioned, and you know, I'll I'll jump on that bandwagon and also mention it first, mm-hmm. is their role um, in our food supply. Mm-hmm. Something like 35% of the global food supply is pollination dependent. So that's, you know, about one out of every three bites of food that we eat um, requires a pollinator. And that includes a lot of our favorite fruits and vegetables, you know, berries, coffee, even chocolate. I mean, think of, uh, think of produce and you should be thinking about, about pollinators. Um, So, you know, we, we need them to survive. We need them for our food supply. That's of course, a really important reason to care about pollinators. But you know, not all not all organisms that pollinate are necessarily important in our crop systems, right? Mm-hmm. But they are incredibly important for our natural ecosystems. Pollinators are what we call um, keystone species. They are highly connected organisms in an ecosystem. And they, you know, pollinate all kinds of plants, something like at close to 90% of plants on on earth require pollination to to survive and 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 uh you know have their populations persist so you know bees are sort of indirectly uh and other pollinators are indirectly um responsible for many other ecosystem services they pollinate trees which clean our air and they pollinate you know plants that are part of watersheds that filter our water and keep it clean and that you know, contribute to erosion control, they are really the glue that are holding our ecosystems together. And you can't, you can't put a dollar amount on that. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, you know, I've heard the, the crazy numbers about how many, what is it, butterflies or insects, uh, birds eat. So I'm imagining you know, a lot of butterflies and moths and are eaten by birds. So if they weren't around, you know, obviously those, those critters wouldn't have as much to eat. Yes, exactly. A caterpillars um, and the the larval stage of some uh, of m- many insects and certainly moths and butterflies um, are really important food sources for birds. Yeah, and it, I, f- I actually do forget the statistic, but um, that came out of I think Desiree Narango's um, doctoral research. She she was a, a student of Doug Tallamy's, um, uh, and it, it was a shocking number of caterpillars that were required mm-hmm. to feed like one chickadee chick um (laughs) in like a day Uh (laughs) they they need a lot (laughs) you're listening to farm to fork on valley free radio wxojlp 103.3 fm in northampton and we're talking with rosemary malfi mass pollinator network coordinator Um, so you know rosemary when i'm talking to other folks about pollinator gardens i often hear well what's like, what is a pollinator garden? Like I have a flower garden at home. Isn't that a pollinator garden? And Mm -hmm. I have to explain. So, you know, what is the difference between, you know, your typical flower garden in a yard and a pollinator friendly garden? Yeah. um, There are uh, a couple of differences between, you know, what we might consider a conventional garden and a pollinator garden. Um, one which may not pertain to everyone's, you know, gar- garden, um, but one that's very common is that 
you know, gardens sort of traditionally, conventionally have been uh, grown and maintained for our aesthetic enjoyment. And so they contain a lot of ornamental species, a lot of exotic species that are very beautiful, um, but often don't offer rewards for native pollinators. Um, sometimes that's because um, they just are not the host plants that our pollinators have evolved with, and so they're not attracted to them. Um, and sometimes it is also the case that those plants, uh, because they are you know, artificially bred for certain traits, again, that we find pleasing, they don't actually have very good nectar and, and pollen rewards, um, which we can talk a little bit about more if you like. But um, that's, that's, that's one distinction. So a, a pollinator garden uh, has native plants that we know support native butterflies, native bees, and other organisms as you know, host plants. So those are plants that we know that butterflies will lay eggs on and where caterpillars will, will develop and then eventually turn into adult butterflies and moths. And they also contain uh, really important food resources for uh, insects like, like bees and also, of course, of course, adult butterflies. So these are native plants that have uh, high nectar content and also uh, you know, nutrient-rich pollen. Mm -hmm. yeah, I have a, so I have a friend who, you know, she loves the big flowers, the big showy, and yes. but she but she really wants to help the pollinators. So what's really tough for her is, you know, pretty much every pollinator from the flower is a tiny, you know, tiny, tiny, <laughs> not showy at all. Uh, so she's. Yeah, she's trying to look beyond the big showy flowers. <laughs> yes, I, I, I have to do this for the pollinators. I can't, you know, I have to give up my big showy flowers. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, yes, it's, it can be hard to part with certain plants. And I, you know, I, I think it's important to also say that, yes, we want people to plant, uh, you know, native plants, but it's okay to have some, some in there that are, that are non-native, that are very dear to you that as long mm -hmm. as they're not also considered invasive plants, right. <laughs> um, which some in the ornamental industry are. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, and it's also about embracing, I think, a different aesthetic. Many native plants are really beautiful and have some really beautiful inflorescences too and colors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. You just brought up, uh, I mean, I've heard the rule of thumb is you want to try to have 80% of the plants in that pollinator garden be native. Um, but yeah, but when, you know, we have a, we inherited a butterfly bush when we bought our house. I had no experience with really any flowers before that. And there's, you know, locally there's debate, you know, is it invasive? It's not invasive. I picked up one of those free, you know, green uh, newspapers and there was an article about invasives and the author mentioned butterfly bush. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely invasive. It was nice. She had a list of alternatives, which is great, uh, including natives. Um, but when I went to, so I popped into um, Gardener Supply and I brought it up and the woman at the cash register said, oh, no, I don't No, I don't think in this area. I mean, definitely down south they're invasive but in this area she said I don't think they spread a lot but I remember from that article it said if you read the tag on the plant and it says grows vigorously 
that's probably not a good sign. Like you probably want to stay away from that plant. And I have to say, I prune this butterfly bush. I mean, I pruned it in the spring and it, you know, by midsummer, it was already snaking over my, the other bushes around it. I mean, just taking over. And so I cut it back again and now it's, and it grew just as much. I mean, the thing is, yeah, it's a monster. So I, I, you know, I have the, I was like a love hate relationship with it. I'm not, not really sure. Should, you know, do I replace it? Like what, you know, what should I do about the butterfly bush plant? But yeah, no, it's a, I feel like a number of people have asked questions like that. You know, they have these, um, uh, plants on their property that they're, that they now know are invasive or you know, mm-hmm. not as good as a native alternative. And I, mm-hmm. I generally feel like having flowers is better than not having flowers. Um, but if you have the opportunity to replace it and you have a plan, then, then you should go ahead and, and do that. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, substitute a native in there. Yeah. But if you don't have a plan or if it's you know just not the right time or not a good opportunity, it's, it's good to just have flowers versus not having flowers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Rosemary, what is the biggest challenge uh, for pollinators right now? Would you say? Oh, um, I might cheat on that answer a little bit and say mm-hmm. humans <laughs> and then break that down. <laughs> right. Makes um, sense. We, you know, have altered our landscape in um, a number of really remarkable ways and that has had impacts of course not not just on flower visiting insects like pollinators but wildlife you know broadly and and biodiversity so i'd say one of the um, number one challenges facing pollinators is habitat loss you know we've we've converted natural land to you know various human land uses including farmland and uh, you know residential areas at a, a, a really um, you know high rate over the last century. And that has resulted in, um, that has certainly contributed to to, uh, declining pollinator populations. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have, you know, we over rely um, as a society, as a country on on pesticides. We use about 1 billion pounds of, you know, pesticides annually Mm -hmm. uh, for, for various things, <laughs> which is a huge, huge number. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, f- folks might be familiar with the term neonicotinoids or neonics. That's a particular class of chemicals that are ubiquitous, very widely used, probably the most used, uh, certainly in, in the United States. And they are very specifically implicated in pollinator declines. And that is because of how they are absorbed into the plants. Um, so these these chemicals are often applied as what we call seed treatment. So the seed is coated in the pesticide. Mm. And then as the plant sprouts and grows, that pesticide is absorbed into all of the tissues of the plant and expressed there. And that includes the flowers um, mm. and, the, and the nectar and the pollen. And so uh, it's really unavoidable for insects to encounter pesticides in those, in those treated plants. Yeah. So those are, yeah do you know if yeah. uh, Europe or European countries have banned? I thought they had banned. They neonics. have. Yeah. The yeah. EU, I think it was in 2012 or 2013 banned mm-hmm. the use of neonicotinoids because of their, um, because of, you know, being suspected of causing harm to pollinator populations. And yet, you know, we continue to use them mm-hmm. very widely. So Rosemary, um, what are, what would you say are the most effective actions that people can take 
related to helping pollinators? Yeah, there are, you know, there's something for each of us to do. Everyone uh, can do something to help pollinators. I would say the number one action that people can take is to create habitat. We need more food for for pollinators. Um, So the the number one thing that you can do is to create uh, uh, habitat, which includes flowering plants, which of course provide food for pollinators. They use the nectar and the pollen. It also means creating nesting habitat and overwintering sites. Um, And you can do that in a few different ways, depending on uh, the the pollinator. And I encourage you to go to our website, masspollinatornetwork.org, and to go to our resources page. And we have some information there and some resources linked for for how you can go about uh, doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beyond beyond that, I would also encourage folks to reduce or eliminate pesticide use, particularly in in gardens where there's very little reason to to be using them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, as a consumer, you know, if, if, uh, if you maybe you're not a gardener, um, but you're certainly a consumer of, of food, you know, to, to the extent possible buying local and buying organic is also a way of supporting food systems that are more pollinator friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know another sort of rule of thumb, if you're creating a pollinator friendly garden is to have at least nine different types of plants, you know, three mm-hmm. that flower in the early spring, three in the summer, three in the fall. That way you have a continuous buffet for the pollinators to partake of. Um, so, and yeah, you, you know, you wouldn't want to just have one, one flower out there, one little, yeah, even if you had one type of flower, but in a little bunch you know, your the pollinators would come by, but then have to travel, you know, potentially pretty far for the next one, the next meal. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Seasonal coverage is, is huge. Um, mm-hmm. So, right. So when you're planning your garden, you do want to include plants that flower. Uh, it provides some kind of food throughout the entire growing season. Mm-hmm. I would say the early part of the season can be m- most challenging um, mm-hmm. and you know, if you have the the capacity for it, the space, you know, putting in trees and shrubs uh, that flower early will you know, benefit those earliest emerging pollinators like queen bumblebees, and also some some solitary species that um, that you know go for that go for that tree pollen. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, nine's a good number, I would say, if you're working with a with a smaller space. Um, like if you're if you have more of like an urban you know small urban garden, it's okay to have a smaller number of species. And I I, mm-hmm. I think you know you go for picking one or two that are early, one you know one or two that are in the middle, and one or two that provide um, those late season resources. Mm-hmm. We need to take a station break, but please stay with us because uh, when we return, we'll continue our discussion with Rosemary Malfi, Mass Pollinator Network Coordinator. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, an independent nonprofit community-run station in Northampton, Massachusetts. The show streams on valleyfreeradio.org, where you can also find our program schedule and become involved with the station.
Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of Valley Free Radio. River Valley Co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods, fresh produce, meat and seafood, cheese and dairy, bread and baked goods, and an in-house deli, along with a wide selection of bulk foods and a large selection of natural and organic grocery items. Owned by its customers, although everyone is welcome. Co-op ownership is not required. Open daily 8 to 10, 330 North King Street, Northampton. Phone 413-584-2665. RiverValleyMarket.com. Co-op. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of free speech in the Pioneer Valley. VFR listeners, this is Bob Balo. I'm at the controls in the VFR studio every Monday morning from 6 till 9 a.m. I play music and I talk. And I give the time and temperature. Also, I drink a lot of coffee. Then I go home. But I faithfully return Every Monday morning, 6 till 9 a.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Driving means freedom, exploration, fun, pride, flexibility, protection, friendship, independence. Distracted driving means danger, recklessness, irresponsible, chaos, police, devastation, tears, death. Safe driving means staying alert and staying alive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, Noise, and the Ad Council. VFR listener. My name is Jessica, Sue Timberlake, uh, co-host and show producer Claire Piazza. Join me in the studio. We've been talking with Rosemary Malfi, Mass Pollinator Network Coordinator this evening. Uh, so, yeah, Rosemary, I was curious about you. You alluded to urban uh, dwellers. So I know a lot of people will say to me, I have such a small space at my apartment, my condo. I'm lucky if I can, you know, put a pot out on my balcony. So are there, I mean, I know that there are some herb plants that really, you know, can produce a lot of flowers, little flowers for pollinators, but. Do you have some ideas for people who really have a small, very tiny space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, any putting any flowers out there is going to be um, is going to be helpful for for pollinators in an urban setting. Um, and you know, if you just have like a little rooftop area, or maybe you only have a window where you could put a window box, there are um, some good guides for doing container gardens and and also you know, smaller plantings like that. And certainly, you know, things like, uh, like mints, like mint flowers, um, uh, have, are really attractive to, to bees. They provide a lot of nectar. Um, so you can grow, you know, things that are beneficial, uh, for you, like, you know, having, having herbs around and also, uh, when they're flowering will, uh, benefit the benefit pollinators that are around, um, yeah, and so I do. I do encourage you to go again to our website, masspollinatornetwork.org. Mm-hmm. We have a resources section, and if you go to the the planting uh, part of that website, there are um, some guides there about you know different kinds of garden design. And it does include um, some some links to uh, container gardens. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that surprised me, um, one of the guidelines is to have water. I mean, obviously it shouldn't surprise me now. We've had a drought, you know, drought conditions for the last two years. Yeah. Uh, you know, water is so important to have out in a dish, but people don't think, 
you know, the pollinators are so small, it's easier for them to fall into the water and drown. So you want to have yes. little perches, you know, for them to kind of sit on the pebbles or a rock to get a drink. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, it, um, it is important for uh, certain species to have, have access to uh, water. I know we don't think of them as sort of like drinking water, um, mm -hmm. but uh, they do uh, need that. In fact, honeybees, you know, use it for something called evaporative cooling. Um, mm -hmm. So they, they cool off their colonies using water that they collect. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you do have to be, <laughs> to be careful because if it's too deep, they will just, um, they will just drown. Mm -hmm. So you can have uh, yeah, let, put little stones in a dish and, and fill that with water. It's a good way of, of doing it. And I'm, I've seen some pretty uh, creative things uh, on the internet as well. You know, various really beautiful ways that people have put those watering areas together. So I encourage you to look up Monarch way stations in particular, mm -hmm. uh, tend to have instructions on how to, how to do that. That's great. Uh, so I know that, you know, I didn't personally feel confident uh, a few years ago to design my own pollinator garden. So, you know, I ended up hiring Tom Sullivan of Pollinators Welcome yeah. uh, to design it for me. Um, but if an individual wants to install a pollinator-friendly garden, uh, you know, what resources are out there, you know, now to help, help them do that? Um, I think I've read about kits now that may be available. Yes, yes. That was actually the first thing I was going to mention. So uh, for the Pioneer Valley in the Nor Northampton area, uh, there is an entire toolkit that's been developed, which includes uh, plant suggestions. It, in it actually includes specific designs for different contexts, like if it's a wet area or a more dry area. Those plans were put together by a landscape designer and regional planner named Evan Abramson, who is the... Um, uh, the operator of landscape interactions. And you can find those plans on his website, which is landscapeinteractions.com. And in fact, he just put together, I think, a, a whole DIY section, which is really um, considerate and, and very generous, where he has put all of the plans that he's developed for different parts of the state mm -hmm. and has made them just openly accessible and, and completely free. So you can go there and find these uh, kits that he has developed and get some ideas for the kinds of gardens that you might build, depending on the you know particular site that you're working with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can also go, to, again, uh, I keep directing people there, but we do on, on our website have some other plant lists as well and plant finders. So we link to, uh, for, for example, the Native Plant Trust has this really great tool where you know, if you have particular conditions that you're trying to meet, like wet soil and you know it has a lot of clay, you can check boxes for different criteria and then it will give, it will suggest to you the plants that you might want to uh, put in your garden given those conditions. Mm -hmm. well, that's super helpful. It's really, really useful. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know, well, we actually fairly recently had uh, Kathy from That's a Plenty Farm. Yeah. You know, and, and they talked about the deck of cards, you know, they've designed and they have a, big publisher now who's willing to publish that for them. So that's nice because the price will come down and make it more affordable. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, um, I have a deck of those and mm -hmm. I, I really, uh, I really love them. I actually used mm -hmm. them this uh, summer because it was an easy way. Uh, you know, I'm kind of like a visual tactile person. So I, mm -hmm. it was an easy way to kind of plan out 
um, actually the seasonality of, of the garden that I was trying to put in. So they're, they're great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So people can, who are interested can go to the, that's a plenty farm uh, website. I believe they're, well, they might still be trying to sell their old decks that they self-published uh, in order to make way for the make way for these new newly published uh, decks of cards, uh, but there's you know all any information that you want about a specific flower uh, flowering plant is on the card. Uh, so, Rosemary, have you had the opportunity to do any coalition building in your position? Yes, yes. So i I would say that um, putting together the pollinator network or working to establish that network is sort of a coalition building activity in and of itself. Mm -hmm. You know, we are a statewide organization and we have participating community groups really from across the entire state. So I, you know, I mentioned in the, in the beginning of the segment that we, we kind of grew out of the Western mass pollinator network. So you would, you would kind of think that our participant base would be, you know, biased toward the Western part of the state, but that's actually not true. We have representation truly all the way from the Berkshires to the North and South shores and points in between, which is, which is of course, uh, very exciting for me. Um, and uh, bringing all of those community groups together, you know, we really do form a coalition and we, we can and have mobilized those groups and other individuals uh, you know, in favor of certain policies and, and to advocate for policies uh, when that when that's been uh, relevant. So I would say that we, the Massachusetts Pollinator Network, is a program of NOFA Mass, but also all of the people who make up that network could be considered a coalition. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So I, I would say that, and then also, uh, I've been really fortunate to be working. Uh, with Marty Dagoberto Driggs, who's our policy director, who is really plugged into a, a number of different coalitions who are all tackling kind of different aspects of trying to improve our food system. And one that I've been uh, more directly involved with is the Mosquito Coalition, and that uh, has a number of participating organizations, including Beyond Pesticides, the Mass Rivers Alliance, Mass Audubon, the Sierra Club. And that coalition is uh, focused on ecological mosquito control and reforming how mosquitoes are controlled in the state, which of course is um, an issue because uh, you know pollinators are affected by the pesticides that are that are used um, in those spraying programs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Rosemary, um, is there currently any legislation being considered uh, to support pollinators? Yeah, so uh, the legislative cycle in Massachusetts, is two years long, and the most recent cycle just concluded on July thirty first. Uh, so we had a suite of bills that we were um, advocating for for that legislative cycle, and um, you know, right now, I guess could be considered it's the informal session, but no new bills are being introduced right at this moment that will be happening mm -hmm. soon. Um, so I can say. You know, in the in the previous cycle, one victory that I would highlight is uh, there was a provision in the climate bill that passed that will revive a pollinator friendly solar program that had been, uh, we believe, sort of uh, improperly terminated mm. by the Department of Public Utilities at the end of 2021. Mm. 
-hmm. the SMART program, which is the uh, DOER's program, which involves lots of incentives for um, for solar development, included this really small incentive called the pollinator adder, which basically just compensates solar developers for putting in pollinator habitat on, on their solar fields rather than using, you know, a more conventional choice like turf grass or fescue mm -hmm. or just, you know, unmanaged weeds. And um, for whatever reason, they, they decided to disallow cost recovery for that particular part of the SMART program. And uh, this provision in the climate bill should help to revive that program, which was terminated. Mm -hmm. um, but looking ahead to next session, some things that we will almost certainly be supporting are ecological mosquito control legislation that did not make it through this time around, um, but I, we expect that something similar will be introduced again. We also will be supporting reforms to increase transparency around pesticide use in Massachusetts. Uh, right now, just to kind of give you an example of um, something that we're hoping to change, you know, reports on pesticide use from licensed pesticide applicators are submitted on paper and kept on paper. There is no digital record of um, those pesticide applications. And so if you wanted to view them, you'd have to submit, you know, a formal records request. And uh, it's our understanding that there's no geographical data associated with those reports. So you don't really know where exactly things are being sprayed, which doesn't give us a very good baseline understanding of pesticide use in the state. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been really happy to see folks uh, like Representative Dome and Senator Comerford leading the way on these issues. And we look forward to communicating with their offices uh, about our priorities for the coming for the coming year, which mm -hmm. we uh, we believe we share. That's great. That sounds awesome. Uh, Rosemary, when it, when it comes to financial support for pollinators from the government, um, is there any, is there any, and if so, uh, where is that money being spent, uh, generally? Yeah, there, um, so the, unfortunately there's not, uh, there aren't very clear sort of direct, um, programs to fund private owners, you know, private landowners mm -hmm. for putting in pollinator habitat, but they're depending on your circumstance, you know, there are some programs that you might be able to, to access depending on what kind of planting you're doing. So the first program I would mention is the USDA um, NRCS EQIP program. Um, NRCS is the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and they offer technical support for pollinator habitat installations on farmland. And, and really anyone can request that. You just don't necessarily get funding for it. Some farmers are also eligible for cost sharing for the installation of habitat through that program. So if you think you might be eligible and want to do that, I really encourage you to, um, to, uh, to look up that program. And we also had a seminar event in the spring, I think it was March of this, of this year, with folks from the Xerces Society and uh, the state biologist from Massachusetts NRCS office, Michelle Cozine, um, to kind of go over the details of this program. So you can access that seminar uh, video through our, our website. There are also some grants from um, mass wildlife that can help certain eligible property owners, you know, particularly if you're dealing with uh, conservation land. So if you look up, you know, mass wildlife and, uh, you know, gr grants, you'll uh, find some that you're potentially eligible for. And then conservation districts are eligible for certain funds. So if you're part of a conservation district, um, there are certain funds set aside for, for them in particular. 
Uh, so that's another one that, again, depending on your circumstances, you could look up. Uh, if you're talking about, you know, municipal planting, though, and, and some, uh, you know, something really local like that, if your town participates in the Community Preservation Act, if that was adopted by your town, then there should be funds set aside through the act that could potentially be used to support a pollinator habitat project if you're doing it as part of something like a like a park or recreational field rehabilitation. So there are there are funds available. It's just it's not always um, straightforward to to find to find them. Mm -hmm. uh, so Rosemary, can you give us a sense of how many pollinator related activities uh, and garden projects are happening across the state? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, unfortunately, it's not well documented. You know how many mm -hmm. how many pollinator gardens are across the state. There are some groups like uh, Doug Tallamy's Homegrown National Park that are trying to track you know the different pollinator gardens. Um, in their case, across the the nation, uh, the Mystic Charles Pollinator Pathway Group, which is in the Boston area. They have this really great survey that folks feel, fill out um, to uh, you know, demonstrate that their garden qualifies. And they have a, a really uh, excellent map that's showing you know, gardens and the spatial connectivity of those gardens in, in that area. But there's no you know, one single place where you can kind of find all of the different um, gardens. That said, uh, what I can tell you is that you know, we've identified about 30 community groups. And I'm sure that's an underestimate who are working on different kinds of pollinator projects uh, that are across the state, which is, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. We also you know, have, again, identified, and this is surely an underestimate, but 10 conservation organizations in the state that have specific, a specific pollinator focus or an active project going on. That includes folks like uh, the Lincoln Land Trust, which have an entire action plan, actually, that they're trying to implement. So it's not just like one pollinator planting, they, they have a whole plan that involves the surrounding town. Uh, it's a really, really amazing project. Mm -hmm. um, and there are 30 towns by my current count, which I'm sure is a bit outdated, uh, in Massachusetts that have passed some kind of pollinator-friendly policy. Most of those are uh, pollinator-friendly resolutions. Uh, in the case of Somerville, they passed a native plant ordinance, which is, uh, I think was the first of its kind. So there are lots of really great things happening all across the state, even if we can't, you know, perfectly quantify them. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, one, uh, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we're talking with Rosemary Malfi, Mass Pollinator Network, Network Coordinator. Um, so Rosemary, I was curious, uh, you know, have you ever been able to compare or get a sense of how the state of Massachusetts is doing compared to other states when it comes to supporting pollinators? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it, I would say, you know, it's probably a, a bit difficult to compare, contrast, just because there's mm -hmm. no you sort of single resource I think you could access that um, would give you all the information you need to to make that kind of assessment. But, um, you know, what I... What I can say is that you know, we were, I think, among the first states to pass, uh, or I shouldn't say it passed, it was a regulation that was implemented that restricts the use of neonicotinoids in the state. So as of, I believe, July 1st of this year, um, retail shelves should no longer have uh, any household products containing neonicotinoids. So your average consumer should not be able to walk into you know, a garden supply center, a Home Depot, and get 
a product off the shelf that contains neonicotinoids, um, which is a huge, a huge, you know, victory that, that was many years of advocacy went into um, that that result and that happening. Um, uh, and uh, other states have followed suit in, in various ways. Some have implemented much stronger restrictions than that. I believe New Jersey uh, passed a uh, a more comprehensive ban on neonicotinoids. But you know, most states don't have this kind of of legislation. So I would say Massachusetts has. Um, been leading in that way, I would also say we we were leading um, when it came to pollinator friendly solar. The mm-hmm. pollinator adder um, was, you know, I think the first of its kind. You know, um, when you look at solar programs across other states, and again, this was to incentivize solar developers to put pollinator habitat under the solar panels rather than going with a more conventional choice mm-hmm. like turf grass. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> that was that was terminated last year and, and hopefully it comes back and puts mm-hmm. us back on the map in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that gives you a little sense for how, how we're doing. Awesome. So Rosemary, what gives you hope as far as people working uh, toward helping pollinators? Well, a number of things. Um, I have been really, really inspired by all of the people that I've met since starting this position um, it's incredible to, you know, witness, to have witnessed this network coming together to, to meet, you know, everyone from, you know, conservation officials and landscape designers who are really honed in on this issue to, you know, home gardeners who, who also are very passionate about it. I would say, you know, I've been, I've been, I was in the field of, you know, bee research for, for set many years before, again, coming to, to NOFA Mass. And I, it, it's truly 10 to 15 years ago, if, if when I told people like, I'm studying bees, you know, I get like a raised eyebrow and people would, you know, mm-hmm. mention something about honeybees or colony collapse disorder, mm-hmm. which was really uh, big at, at that time. And, and, but they, not much else, right? And mm-hmm. now I really, I feel like it's really changed and I feel people are much more aware mm. of the value of pollinators and, um, you know, the amazing ecosystem services that they provide and the fact that they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I, I just feel like there's a, a really, that we're in a moment of accelerating growth in terms of awareness and people wanting to see something happen and take mm-hmm. action. So mm-hmm. it's been uh, really uplifting for actually for me to be in this position and to get to to talk to all these folks and and see how much people care. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, Rosemary, we have about a minute left. Uh, are there any Ooh. last uh, tidbits, facts you want to throw out for our listening audience? Yeah, well, you know, I, um, I hope folks listening um, have gotten this message already from what I've said, but, you know, we encourage folks to take these individual actions like putting in pollinator gardens and, you know, changing the way that you um, treat your, treat your lawn, uh, preferably having less lawn. But we also encourage folks to think about collective action as well. And that can be anything from, you know, organizing with your neighbors to create gardens that are spatially connected and form a pathway. And, or it could be getting involved in, uh, you know, petitioning, your local, um, you know, municipal officials to 
implement organic land care and, and pest control practices on, on town land, or it could be getting involved in, you know, state legislation efforts and, and getting involved with, you know, NOFA Mass or Climate Action Now or Mothers Out Front and uh, and working on those issues. There are just, there's so many ways to get involved. And um, yeah, I hope folks, folks pursue uh, multiple avenues. Awesome. Well, we'd like to thank our guest, Rosemary Malfi, Mass Pollinator Network Coordinator. Thanks, Rosemary. Thank you so much for having me. You may find additional information about Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio's website, valleyfreeradio.org. To listen to archived shows of earlier guests, visit our podcast site at farmtofork.pinecast, that's P-I-N-E-C-A-S-T dot C-O. Our theme song, Sometimes I Wonder Where My Food Comes From, was written by Scraggly Dan and the Stragglers for this Farm to Fork radio program and performed by artists. This Farm to Fork show will re-air this Thursday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Catch Tibetan Healing here on 103.3 FM Thursdays from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Host uh, Menpa Fonston explores ancient Tibetan wisdom through a modern lens and is dedicated to bringing you Tibetan culture, medicine, the arts, music, and much more. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Twilight's Poetry Pub with host Tommy Twilight. of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger.